0: Hey, this is Mark Kassoff, and this is RPM 45. The Ozark Mountain Daredevils have been entertaining for 50 years with their unique mix of country, rock, bluegrass, and pop. Michael Granda has been there the whole time. It all started when he moved from his hometown of St. Louis to attend college in Springfield, Missouri. There, well, I'll tell you what, I'll let him tell the story.
1: Uh, I was the kid who grew up in St. Louis. Growing up in St. Louis in the '60s, I got to see the Stones. I got to see the Kinks. I got to see the Yardbirds. I got to see Sly and the Family Stone and Otis Redding and uh, Chuck Berry lived in St. Louis oh, his whole that. life. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So I'd go out to Chuck Berry's farm, and he'd be out there playing on a little flatbed trailer outside his house, and it was just great for a little kid like me learning how to play the guitar.
0: Awesome.
1: So so St. Louis had a very cool music scene back then and I took full advantage of it. Yeah. When I moved to Springfield is when I got indoctrinated into country music because I had never heard country music in my childhood household because my father hated it. I never heard it until I moved to Springfield and as a 19 year old kid I discovered it. Mm Mm-hmm. And then i had that whole world to explore it was new and exciting to me and i just went nuts and then when i found uh the guys in the daredevils i was just going oh my god this is absolute heaven you
0: know how did you all get together
1: in springfield missouri which was much less adventurous music-wise than st louis was there were no bands playing original music it was all cover bands we got together because everybody was a songwriter We got together to play absolutely zero Three Dog Night songs. We got together to play absolutely zero David Bowie songs. And we got together to play 100% our own songs. And we all kind of congregated and started playing each other's songs for the sole sake of playing each other's songs. We were just a bunch of hippie songwriters hanging out doing nothing. So we all got together and hung out and did nothing together. That kind of morphed into a band and then people started to discover what we were doing. And we were family tree for two years until we got our record contract. When we signed our first record contract, we discovered there was a family tree up in New England who had trademarked the name mm-hmm. and they were using it as a folk group. So the first item of business we had to take care of, first thing we had to do was change our name. One of the names we came up with was Cosmic Corncob and his amazing Ozark Mountain Daredevils. Wow. Now the first thing we had to do was we had to drop the word amazing because of our friends and the amazing rhythm aces. Okay. And then the second thing we had to do was that we had to drop cosmic corn cob from the beginning because nobody wanted to step out front Be Cosmic corn cob, ampersand, we, we lopped that off the front of the name and that left us with Ozark
0: mountain daredevils. So the name cosmic corn cob is still available. Yeah, you can use it right now, Mark. <laughs> so have at it, my friend. <laughs> Family Tree sounds a little soft for you guys anyway, don't you think?
1: Well, right. And to be honest with you, at the band naming party, when we stumbled upon uh, the Ozark Mountain Daredevils, we didn't really like it, and we continued to come up with prospective names. But our management kept referring us back to the name, because first of all, Ozark is such a, Strong and sturdy word, mm-hmm. but none of us really felt daredevilish on a daily basis. Like this morning, man, I, you know, I don't feel like a daredevil.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, I feel I feel like a guy who wants to sit on his porch and do a crossword puzzle.
0: Musically, you were pretty daredevilish, I would say. I mean, you were adventurous. You did a lot of different kind of things. Well, that's that's true.
1: So uh, over the years, we've kind of grown into it, and uh, it's served us very well, Mark.
0: Now, and you, we're very grateful. You said that it was really when you got a record contract that all this came about. How did you yes. get that record contract with A M?
1: We made a demo tape. So, one of the uh, artists we used to listen to, and they were also in Missouri, was Brewer and Shipley. We liked the way the record sounded, lots of acoustic guitars and harmonies, and then we also liked what they were singing about. So, we got the album, and we... Flipped the album over onto the back cover, and we saw the name Good Karma Productions, Kansas City, Missouri. So we stuck a copy of our cassette into an envelope and sent it to Good Karma Productions in Kansas City. They loved it. They contacted us, and they wanted to represent us. And we said, that would be just fine. Stan Plesser and Paul Peterson were the two managers, and they would fly out to Los Angeles, to conduct business for and Chirpy. So they took uh, our cassette with them after they con- concluded and Chirpy business. They said, oh, and by the way, we have this, this other band back in Missouri. And here, would you like to hear their demo? And a couple of labels passed on us until they got to A&M Records. And they played our demo tape for a gentleman by the name of David Enderly. David Enderly heard it and flipped. And immediately put the wheels in motion for us to get a record
0: deal on A&M Records. And then they put yep. you with a great producer for your first album. Here's that story. David Anderley's in his office and
1: he's listening to our tape and he's wigging out and he, he called his friend Glenn Johns. Now, David Anderley and Glenn Johns were dear, dear friends and they were looking for a project that they could produce together. They thought it would be fun to do an album together. David called Glenn and said, Glenn, you remember that band we were looking for that we were going to co-produce? I found them. (laughs) David and Glenn flew to Kansas City to hear one of our gigs, and they loved what we were doing. And Glenn and David said, we want to produce your album. Glenn said, well, I would love to engineer and produce the album, but I want to do it in my home studio in London. So they flew us all over to London. So in just the blink of an eye, we were driving around, Kansas and Missouri and Iowa and Illinois in a truck we got on airplanes and flew to London and worked in the Olympic Studios which is where Glenn worked with The Stones and The Who and The Beatles. Yeah, I mean this guy's big time. The very very top of the heap. And there we were. Man it, it was like uh, it was like the twilight zone.
0: It, had you been like, out we of the country just, before that?
1: No. You know, we were just 24, 25 year old kids flying over to work with the guy who just produced uh, the Beatles
0: and the Stones. Yeah, mind-blowing. I I was listening to an interview you had did a while back, and I I took this quote from your interview I thought was really good. It says, A bunch of hillbillies from Missouri to make some music that would catch the ear of Glen Johns. We were just as astounded as anyone. Yes. I pinched myself a thousand times. Yeah, so you're out there doing Midwestern college gigs, and all of a sudden you're in in England with Glen Johns.
1: Exactly right. Wow. Hanging out with Badfinger and uh, who'd we bump into? Pete Townsend stumbled in. and wow. yeah. yeah. It was a dream come true.
0: Now, one thing that really uh, kind of, I found amazing. Now, your first hit single was off that album, If You Want to Get to Heaven, but apparently yeah, it right. was a real fight that you guys had to get that on the album. Yes. Can you imagine that record
1: without that song on it?
0: No, and, and obviously <laughs> it was a great song, great record. Hit. What was up with that? Because he really fought it, didn't he? Back then, you could you
1: could cut 10 songs into a piece of vinyl. You could cut five songs on each side, side one and side two of a piece of vinyl, before you started uh, compromising fidelity. Right. So we, we knew we were going to have 10 songs on the album. We recorded 12. When it came time for the final running order, Glenn didn't think that if you want to get to heaven, was as strong as the two extra songs we got. Mm-hmm. And so he said, well, here's my vision of the album. Here's the running order for side one, track one, two, three, four, five. Side two, track one, two, three, four, five. If you want to get to heaven, was not included? Our manager fought him tooth and nail. They've convinced Glenn going through uh, Jerry Moss, who was the M of A&M. That that song was a hit song and it should be on the album. And when it came down to the eleventh hour, we demanded it be on there and it went on.
0: Rest is history, your first
1: yeah. right. yeah. bona fide hit. hit. Yeah. Yeah. It's turned into an anthem. It's not only a hit song, it's an anthem. It's going out to, to heaven. Come on, put your fist in the air, everybody. Yeah. Gotta right. raise a little hell.
0: <laughs> so then yeah. you record your second album, much closer to home. Yes, sir. We had a rehearsal space, it was in an
1: old 1860s Civil War mansion that was used as part of the Underground Railroad. And it was this huge mansion with like seven bedrooms upstairs and these large room fireplaces, root cellars, balconies. And that's where we rehearsed. That's where Glenn and David came to hear our songs and do pre-production for the first album. And we said, well, how, how about if we record our second album right here at this mansion? We had the room, the room sounded beautiful. It was all wood, and we had uh, thick carpets on the, on the floor and uh, heavy drape, so the sound was deadened just perfectly. So instead of packing up all of our shit and going to a state-of-the-art recording studio, we drove a mobile recording studio into the woods Ran all the microphones into our perfectly deadened, soundproof rehearsal room, and recorded the second album in the uh, middle of the Ozarks, out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> it, it's a weird ass story, man. That's why when I was writing that book, I was going, "My God, what a weird story this this is."
0: It's a it's a and great story. I, I also yeah, I got to tell you, I yeah. think you're a great writer. I'm I'm definitely enjoying the book.
1: Well, thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. I wanted it to be historically correct. I didn't want it to be a drug and sex, and here's who I dated after I dated Cher.
0: There was plenty of drugs in that book so far. Yeah, there are. Yeah, <laughs> there were. We, we were stoned-ass hillbillies. No brother. sex, though. You're very circumspect about that. Not yet. Oh, not yet. Okay, I got, <laughs> I, I got something else going here. Well, let's get back to the album. It'll shine when it shines, yep. and it contained your huge hit, top five yep. hit. Yep. Some places, number one hit, Jackie Blue. Now, Jackie Blue, uh, first of all, it's one of my favorite songs. Very different from the other stuff you guys do. Very different. How does that come about? Well,
1: like I said at the beginning of this interview, we were all songwriters, and we all came from different spectrums. We had a bluegrass guy, we had a country guy, myself. I was kind of more the rock and roll guy. And Larry Lee wrote more pop stuff. Uh-huh. When we recorded that song, as you stated, Mark, it's very atypical of our sound. Yes. But we did just as many of Larry's songs as anybody. His songs, if you look at, listen to that first album, you know, Larry's songs are really different, yeah. but they fit in. Now, on the second album, Larry's songs are really different, but they fit in. One of them being Jackie Blue. We didn't think anything of it because uh, we were just having a ball playing music. Right? You know, they were paying us to play music. So we worked up Jackie Blue right alongside the country song and the bluegrass song and the rock and roll song. To us, it was no big deal. But when we recorded it, the record company plucked it out of the album and made a huge hit out of it. When it was a huge hit and it was starting to fade off, the record company came to us and said, "Okay, boys, Jackie Blue is done. It was Jackie Red. <laughs> come, come on, give us a little Jackie Green. How about Jackie Brown?" You know, <laughs> and we and, and we told the record company, "Well, you know, we don't approach our music that way. That's not
0: you guys. We don't no. have
1: Jackie Red."
0: Now, Jackie were, Blue, though, uh, I, I found out was originally written about a man, not a woman. Yeah jackie blue
1: he was this and he do do he went here he went there do 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 he was done on jackie blue played it that way for a while until we recorded the track glenn took larry aside and said larry what what, what is this song about larry told him about the guy and glenn insisted that jackie blue be a girl why is and that
0: what was he thinking
1: i don't know oh okay <laughs> <laughs> but he insisted that he said this is a number one song, gents, but Jackie must be a girl. So Larry and Steve Cash went into the other room and they emerged two or three or four hours later with a whole set of lyrics, a whole different set of lyrics, and the new lyric had Jackie as woman. And the first time the rest of the guys in the band heard it, it kind of startled us because we'd been playing Jackie Blue as a male song, and all of a sudden, old Jackie got himself a sex
0: change. Yeah, this was or before sex changes became more common. Right, exactly. But this was probably the now, easiest sex change, I would imagine. The easiest. Yes. All you needed was a, a pencil and a piece of paper. Different words, and you're all set. So, yeah. So there we are. Now, once
1: again, our fans only knew Jackie Blue as a girl. But our close friends and family who had been listening to the song, we knew Jackie as a guy. And then all of a sudden, she's going to the top of the charts. Once again, we were astounded.
0: It it was very believable to me as a song by a guy who kind of ran into some trouble with this woman and uh, he's getting back at her.
1: Well, not necessarily that, but just kind of an observation about a quirky girl and did her own thing.
0: Well, I want to ask you about uh, some of the lyrics here because I want to know if if it's intentional or it's just my dirty mind, okay? okay? The lines, you'll take an inch, but you love a mile. There never seems to be quite enough floating around to fill your loving cup. <clears throat> okay, was that a sexual reference or am I just dirty? A uh, little of both. <laughs> oh, you—you you are dirty, but you're right. Okay.
1: <laughs> uh, well, you know, you know, give them an inch, they'll take a mile. <laughs> That's an old adage. You know, you've heard that forever. Of course, yes. <laughs> Not necessarily an inch of, you know. Whatever. Uh, yeah, whatever. So there's kind of that innuendo in there, but it wasn't blatant, Only and it wasn't uh, to the warped
0: minds out there like me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you get to your third album, and all yep. of a sudden, Glenn Johns is not producing. Correct. Because apparently, what he he wanted to he wanted you to get rid of your manager or something like that.
1: Well, see, the thing was is, is the. Uh, that gets back to the friction on the first album about if you want to get to heaven
0: Uh glenn
1: didn't want that song on the album and our manager who at times could be quite convincing Mm -hmm. and quite vocal the two of them butted heads and when it came time for the third album glenn got us all in the room said i love working with you guys but i i can't work with your manager and we said well okay uh so we were still a bunch of goobers from Missouri. And we said, well, I guess we're going to stick with our manager. He got us this far. So we had to make a hard choice. We stuck with uh, Stan and Paul and Good Karma and kept it all in the family and kept it all in Missouri. And, and also uh, A&M wanted us to move to Los Angeles because if we moved to Los Angeles, they could get us on the Share Show. They could get us on Mike Douglas. They could get us on the Merv Griffith Variety Hour. And with two hit records under our belt, they felt that, hey, we, we could parlay this into something so we made those two decisions we decided to not move to los angeles and we decided to stick with our management so you make decisions along the way some of them are good some of them aren't so good and neither one of those decisions were bad they were just decisions yeah
0: we made it we made them we lived with them now when you get to the third album okay so he's not producing anymore uh but also and this is just about where i am in your book you know it's like it seems like Whereas the the previous album, you had all these songs ready to go and you were, you know, really prepared and organized. It's sort of like you went out there and you, you really, uh, it seemed like you had a great time. You recorded in, in
1: Nashville. Yeah, oh boy. My money started to pour in from I uh, Want to Get to Heaven and Jackie Blue. Can you say tall cotton?
0: <laughs> You're living a life yeah. that you probably, you know, never thought about, right? Once again, let's use the word astounded. Yeah.
1: So all of a sudden, Glenn is out of the picture. David Andrew Lee continues with working with us. He had a different producing style. Instead of Glenn coming in and saying, you do this and you do this and you do this, David came in and said, hey, what do you guys want to do? When you have a pool of songs to call from, you pull out the first 10, all right. You scrape the cream off the top. The second batch, uh, there's still a bunch of really, really good songs. When you scrape all 30 songs off the top of the bat, then you start going, oh, what about this? Uh, what about this one? Uh, you know, then you got to start writing stuff. So when we went in to make that third album, Call of the Lake album, we went in with a completely new approach, whereas the first two albums we went in completely prepared. We went in to make Call of the Lake album, a little less prepared, a little bit less uh, regimented, a little bit. Uh, disciplined, and we just went in and actually had a really good time doing
0: it. It seemed like it, yes. But it, it, it,
1: it, it, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. We yeah. were um, high on the hog, and, and we were in hog heaven, brother.
0: Yeah, yeah. It seemed like you were in a great time, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, when this album came out, there wasn't a hit. We put out the first album, we had a hit. Hey, this is great. We put out the second album, had a hit. Hey, this is easy. But our third album didn't have a hit, and went, hey, what happened?
0: Not so easy.
1: Not so easy.
0: Right.
1: They say, And what is it they say, Mark? They say, uh, it's easy to get to the top, but it's hard to stay
0: there. Yeah. I'm not sure so, it's easy to get you know. to the top either. I mean, think about how many how many <laughs> bands that did, didn't do it, you know, <laughs> who would look at you guys Correct. and say, oh my God, that, those guys are kicking butt, you know? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway,
1: uh, we didn't have a hit, and it was okay. We made it, and we made the fourth album. We didn't have a hit on it either, So we were making very high-quality music, very, very focused, but you know, you just
0: don't have a hit. A hit is hard to find. Uh, It's hard to get. People don't understand how hard that is. Yeah,
1: sometimes hit doesn't happen. Right. It happens, (laughs)
0: yeah. Yeah, so um, there there was another thing that that came across to me, which is that you guys like to do funny songs, and there was no funny songs on that third album either, and you had a little battle with A&M about that as well.
1: Well, yes. So for the first four or five years of our band, our concerts, we would include these absolutely absurd, ridiculous songs. Chicken Train is one of them. Oh, yeah. So we rec- we used to play these songs at our gigs, and people loved them. Of course. But when it, but when it came time to go in the studio, we didn't record them.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Glenn wasn't that uh, interested in doing those songs. Right. That's fine. He made two hit records, so you can't argue with the man. But we said, man, we've got all these funny-ass songs, and A&M wasn't interested in them either. So when we put out that third album, we said, hey, look, and our fans are clamoring, because there were people out there who were fans of ours who loved Chicken Train, and they didn't like Jackie Blue. And we had fans out there who loved Jackie Blue, but they didn't like all that stupid shit we did. So we asked the record company if they would uh, make one of those little red plastic records you used to get on the back of cereal boxes. And uh, we we put that as an insert into the third album. So if somebody wanted a few laughs, there were some laughs.
0: It would have been really fun, you know? It would have been a little bonus for your album. I think it would be very cool.
1: It would have been very cool. But once again, we were talking to a record company who was selling a million copies of our serious shit, and they didn't really want to rock the boat with some goofball Dr. Demento shit. So, they were the one writing the checks, they were the one pressing the discs. Yeah, man, we had some, and we still have some really funny songs.
0: Now, did you ever put out an album that's just all of that funny stuff, like a comedy record? That's what we're talking about right now. That's a great idea. Of course, I thought of it, so, you know, great minds think alike, right? Uh, Have your people call my people. <laughs> How many people?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, neither do I. So anyway, <laughs> so we're looking to do that as soon as this uh, all this pandemic shit settles oh, down, yeah. and we can and, and we can start getting back into it. One of the first projects we're going to do is go back in and record ten sillier pieces.
0: That's great. The band never really broke up, as I understand it. Is that right? That's exactly correct. This uh,
1: December. We'll be starting our uh, 50th, into our 50th year and we never stopped. Now there have been times when we've taken some time off, you know, mm-hmm. there have been years where we just haven't really done much at all, uh-huh. but we've never really gone away.
0: But people coming and going, never... right? I mean, lots of people coming and going. Okay, I mean, you're the one guy, and Dylan too, Correct. maybe who, who stayed with it throughout. Yeah, there were John, Dylan, Steve,
1: Cash, and myself. Uh-huh. The three of us are the ones that have been climbing in and out of buses and vans and airplanes for fifty years. Uh-huh. So, you, so uh, you guys, other are the people bedrock. have come and
0: gone, dozens. Yeah, yeah,
1: we're the bedrock.
0: Yeah, I mean, I saw you have yes, some sir. dates scheduled for twenty twenty one.
1: Yes, sir. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we've got a schedule now. Now, we, now, you get into this little area, Mark, when we go out and play these gigs. We don't want to turn into the grassroots where you come out, you do thirty minutes. We don't want to come out and be Paul Revere and the Raiders, where we come out and go, in 1975, we had the song, they do Jackie Blue, hey, we play 30 minutes, because that's all we can play. Right. Here's our four hits, thank you very much, buy our t-shirts. To avoid that, we've continued to play full-length shows, complete with new material, because as a writer, you're always writing. So there's always new material. As a matter of fact, uh, 2019 and 2020, we put out two new albums, so, all new material,
0: and people get those how?
1: Uh, you can go to uh, OzarkMountainDaredevils.com. Oh, here, here, do this, Dareheads, D-A-R-E Heads.com. We've got a new website, got a new website with new albums, and then uh, you know, t-shirts and hats and that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. But yeah, there's new, there's new music all
0: over this new website we have. And also, you've and then, done other uh, things, though, too, right? You've had other bands. I mean, you strike me as a guy who's always, always wants to work somehow, some Exactly right.
1: I put together soup and the sandwiches. I've got oh, good lord, a dozen soup solo albums out, and um, I'm also on Dareheads.com. You know, I love what I do. You know, when I saw, when I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, I got struck by lightning, uh-huh. man. And here we are in you know September 2020, <laughs> and I'm still struck by that same lightning.
0: Yeah, one thing that strikes me about the people I've talked to is, as I'm doing this podcast is obviously you want to be successful and sell a lot of records and all that stuff, but the truth is you just love doing it. Correct. As a matter of
1: fact, this evening when I play my guitar, I pick it up and I'm going to turn into a giant 8th grader. And I'm and when, I, when I pick my guitar up, I'm not going to say, oh, okay, no. what am I going to do now to make me a million dollars? Tonight I'm going to pick my guitar up to just have fun. You know, they call it play music. Let's play music. They don't Uh call it work music. Every time I pick up my guitar, I play.
0: Yeah, well, you know what? That makes you one of the uh, very fortunate ones that you know people who do what they love to do, that is so special and unfortunately not that typical. Correct. Yeah,
1: we're, we're fortunate men. I mean, John and Steve and I, I mean, we know that we're fortunate men. I spent my whole life playing music and getting checks. You know and I know that we're the lucky ones and I know that we're uh, one of the uh, the exception to the rule. There's a billion musicians out there, but there are some of us who are you know we make our living at it. I'm a lucky man,
0: man. Absolutely. Is there anything else I haven't uh, talked to you about that you want to talk about or promote? <laughs> I want to promote your book because I don't think I, I I didn't say the name of your book. The book is entitled It Shined." You can get it at the Daredevil's website.
1: You got, I think you can also get it at Amazon. You can get it at Kindle, or you can write in and get an actual hard-cover, hard-bound book with pages and pictures and ink. How oh, novel. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good one. <laughs> it's, you know, 500 pages of, you know, hillbilly rock and roll. It's a story of a bunch of guys from the middle of the country who kind of, through, you know, perseverance and a little bit of, luck forged and made good lives
0: for ourselves. And I would say commitment as well, in the sense that you were committed to doing it your way. That's
1: the biggest word of all right there. Commitment to the art.
0: Yes, uh, it just shines right Mm -hmm. through, as you might say.
1: So It it Shined is the name of the book. Uh, You can go to dareheads.com, a couple clicks of the mouse, and you can have a book in your hands by next week. Or you could go to Amazon and download it. But, yeah, it's out there, and uh, next year we're going to be celebrating our 50th year, and we've got some surprises in store for everyone who've uh, been our fans for the last half century.
0: Well, thank you so much for for, uh, joining me today. I've enjoyed talking with you. Enjoyed talking to you, brother. What a great guy, Michael Granda. By the way, you may see him listed as Michael Soup Granda. That's S-U-P-E, not S-O-U-P. And the reason is that he, he early in their career, uh, he went on stage in a Superman costume. So he got nicknamed as Soup. And we'll be back with more musical soup next Wednesday on RPM 45.